Good morning, Watermark. How you guys doing? My name's Nathan. Some of y'all are going, who the heck is that guy? Well, sometimes I don't even know. But my name's Nathan, and I serve on the equipping team here at the Dallas campus, and it's a, it's a, a real uh, privilege to be with you this morning. Um, one of the ministries, I, I oversee a couple different ministries. One of them is Equip Disciple and ED people in the house. That's what I'm talking about. And uh, another one is core classes. So anybody taking core classes before? Come on, there you go. And then uh, the other one that I oversee is called Great Questions. And Great Questions is our apologetics ministry. And a lot of times people don't really know what apologetics is. I mean, they're kind of like, what are you just like go around apologizing for things? And, and uh, it's like, well, I mean, sometimes we do, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, but apologetics just comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a defense. And so that's our ministry to skeptics, to atheists, to agnostics. And, and uh, we meet every single Monday night at 7.30. Um, right under these risers over here, there's a South Community Room, and we meet from 7.30 to 8.30. And if, if you or someone you know is having a crisis of faith, or are you, if you're a skeptic and you're just checking out Christianity, then um, we, we would love to have you come. It's just a safe place to ask the tough questions. You can literally ask whatever you want. That's like the fun thing about it is we never know what's gonna happen, which is awesome. <laughs> and uh, so, but I tell people on a consistent basis as an apologist, um, I don't defend Christianity as much as I clarify it for people. And what I mean by that is it's not like people come in and they have a lot of right ideas that need to be uh, defended where it's like, well, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea, but really it's like this. Really, more often than not, people come in with a lot of wrong ideas and um, the, they, they are rejecting a God that, um, that, frankly, I would also reject. There was a guy in the mid-50s named um, George Buttrick who was a chaplain at Harvard University. And as you can imagine, at Harvard, a bunch of people would consistently come to him and be like, hey, I'm, I don't believe in God. And George's base, like, standard reply to these people would be, well, let's sit down and talk about the God that you don't believe in because I probably don't believe in that God either. And I think that's a really good way of looking at um, the issue that we're gonna be talking about today. And that is, um, hey, what is God like? What's the story that he's writing? And so when Todd asked me a month ago or so, he's like, hey, I'd love for you to talk about um, the role of scripture in the way that people grow in spiritual formation. Uh, honestly, my first question was, why? <laughs> I mean, not like why, like, you know, why are you asking me to do that? I think it's a good idea to do. But I think uh, the main reason that I thought why was, I wonder why people read scripture. Have you ever asked yourself that? Have you ever wondered like, okay, I read this, yeah, and I mean, Anne just did a great job of standing up and being like, hey, everybody should read scripture and probably most or if not all of you was like, yeah, that's a good idea. We should probably read scripture. And I, I think this morning I'm asking why? Why do we do that? Well, I think there's four common misconceptions that, that take place that um, are the motivation behind why people read scripture. And here they are. I mean, there's more of them, but these are the ones that I see most often. One of them, and, and probably the most common one, is like Shane talked about, um, is that we view scripture and we, or we view God in a transactional sense. And so we think, well, 
if I read my Bible and do these like spiritual to do things and check them all off, then God will be good with me and I'll be good. So I need to do that. And then um, correspondingly, we also might say something like, well, but I didn't read my Bible today. And so something bad happens and you're like, well, yeah, I didn't read my Bible today, right? And, and uh, we view it like it's kind of this like magic book. If you do it, then it's good. If you don't do it, it's bad. It's kind of do good, get good, do bad, get bad. It's this transaction. The second common thing is some people treat it like a textbook. I definitely am in danger of falling into this category. I mean, somebody who just loves to study the scriptures um, and to know doctrine and all of those kinds of things. This is the person um, that when you're in your like community group or whatever, and you're sitting there and you're talking and somebody says something that's just like a little bit off, you know, and, and this is the person that's like, whoa, hang on, you know, and he starts quoting like early Christian creeds <laughs> and the council of Nicaea it said this, this and this, and everybody's like, what in the world, you know, and uh, some people, but, but some people treat the text like it's a textbook. And, and uh, it's, it, it is that in some sense, but it's not primarily that. Then there's a lot of people that treat it like it's some sort of self-help sentimentality. They treat it like it's an inspirational book where they're like, man, I really need a shot in the arm this morning as I go out in my day. And so I'm, I'm going to read this so that I can be motivated to do what I need to do. Um, and, and so uh, by raise of hands, I'm just curious and, and, uh, it'd be interesting to see how you guys do compared to, uh, the Saturday service. But how many of you guys have ever just in the morning gotten up and just been like, oh man, I just need something. And you kind of take the Bible and you just like, they're like, Lord, show it to me. And you open it up and you skim down and you're like, boom, da, 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 da. man, that was amazing. Thank you, Lord. You know, and you shut the, I don't even know who Nahum is, but that was awesome, you know. How many bodies ever done that? Come on, be honest. I need to go. Everybody else, you're a liar. <laughs> liar. <clears throat> and then, uh, this is probably, I see this a lot. Um, people just view it as a utility, like it's something to be used. Uh, like uh, somebody has a problem and you're like, I don't know how to help you, but maybe a verse will help. And so, I don't even know what context this is. I don't even know what book this is, but this sounds like it might help you. And then you just kind of throw that verse at somebody. Anybody ever done that before? Yeah, it's pretty common. I call them Bible ninja throwing stars. You know, it's like, you know, and the person who needs something is like, oh, what was that? And then when they don't change, you're confused because they're like, well, that should have worked. You know, I, I threw a verse at you and it didn't work. What's going on? Well, we laugh at these things because they're true, <laughs> but uh, I, I hope this morning for this to be a corrector because scripture is first and foremost, not transactional. It's not a textbook. It's not inspirational and it's not a, a utilitarian tool. It's first and foremost, a narrative. It's a story. It's a story that was, that was written for you, but it was not written to you. It was written to an ancient people in the ancient Near East, this small tribe called the Israelites. And, and it's a story of how God has been moving through human history, primarily through the Israelites and then ultimately through his son um, to save the entire world. And so what I wanna walk through this morning, what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be walking through that story. What they do when they give the equipping guy a mic and a stage on Sunday is we, we study the whole Bible. So that's what we're gonna do this morning. You know, so buckle up, we might be here, a while. I'm just joking. <clears throat> um, but we are gonna move through the entire story of scripture. 
And that, that entire story is called a meta-narrative. Oxford Dictionary uh, defines meta-narrative as this. An overarching account or interpretation of events and circumstances that provides a pattern or a structure for people's beliefs and it gives meaning to their experiences. I mean, story shapes the way that we live. It shapes the way that you view yourself. It shapes the way that you view the world you live in. It shapes the way that you view God. And the reality of it is, is, is our, all, every single one of you is living in a story. You have been your entire life. It's, it's made up of formative experiences when you were a child, your family background, your expectations, your met expectations, your unmet expectations, all of these, your successes, your failures, everything, all of that is thrown into a, a big pot and just stirred. And frankly, it's kind of dirty. I mean, if we're honest, it's really dirty. And so the lens that we view these things through, we are susceptible to being pulled into a story that God is not writing. And the, 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 the reality of it is, is there is an enemy who is wanting to steal from you and kill you and destroy you. And so there is deception that tries to pull you into another story, one that will kill you. And so today I'm gonna contrast the narrative of, of God's story and who he is and his character and his nature versus the deception that the enemy is whispering in our ears every single day. And we're gonna see where we are living. So let's jump in. The story begins, and guess what? In this story, you are not the main character. <laughs> Did you know that? You are not the main character, but a lot of us act like we are, right? I mean, we're, we're like open the scripture, we're like, all right, Lord, what do you have for me today? You know. And instead of, man, I'm, I'm coming to this text to, to see God, a lot of it, it's just like, hey, how can, how can you fix me today, right? Instead of fixing our eyes on, on Christ. But, but God is the main character of the story. And I, I think that begs the question, well, what kind of God is he like? And, and I think the story just starts in a really interesting way. In the ancient Near East, there were a bunch of different cultures. I mean, you had Mesopotamia and, and uh, during the time of the patriarchs around Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and those guys, you, uh, some of the world powers were like the Hittites and uh, there were the Syrians, which is in Ugarit, and then there were the Egyptians and all of these different societies had creation stories. And if you line them up um, next to one another and just read, like collate them and put them next to each other and then just read them, they all read very similar to one another. And the Hebrew, the Hebrew creation story is no different. It reads very similar to the other uh, accounts from the ancient Near East. And what's interesting about that is in the ancient Near East, the other creation stories have this formless water. There's this void. And then out of that, the gods, there's this pantheon of gods, and they all fight each other. There's this massive cosmic battle to see who is the strongest god. And then there is a chief deity who wins that fight, and then he's the one who gets to shape and form the formlessness and cause it to function. Now, if you're reading this and then you get to the Hebrew creation story, then you look at it, and if you're an ancient Near Eastern, you look at that, and your first question is, where are the other gods? Because they're not any. It's just Yahweh alone. There's no cosmic battle. And Yahweh takes the formlessness and the void that, that he's created, and he shapes it. 
and, he, and he, he makes it into what it's supposed to be. And then he fills it with agents that are executing the things the way that he wants them to be executed. He, he forms things and then he fills them. And then he places his under rulers, people who bear his image, people who represent him, he places them on his, uh, on his planet to uh, reflect and to execute the mission that he's given them to uh, fill the earth and to subdue it, to rule over it. Um, and so unlike other ancient Near Eastern stories where the gods like fight each other and then whoever the chief deity is, he, he, he forms things and fills it and then he just checks out. He's like, hey, I'm gonna go sip on a margarita at the beach. You know, you guys just kind of like be my slaves and do whatever I want, do whatever I tell you. He's distant. Uh, unlike that, this is another major difference in the Hebrew story. Yahweh is very present in this story. He's walking with his creation in the garden in the cool of the evening. And so the first thing we see about God is that he's present. He's present with us. He's always been present with us, with his entire creation. And yet there is another character in the story who, is, who takes the form of this serpent. And his primary tool, his mode of operation is to deceive. He wants to deceive. That's the, that's the biggest weapon in his arsenal is to tell a lie. He wants people to um, live in reality, but to function in that reality as if they're in another reality because it causes them to dysfunction. And so what he does in the garden there is he's like, he's like, hey, come here. You can be like God. It's be awesome, right? And, and we, uh, you know, by Adam and Eve, it's all of us, right? And we were like, ooh, yeah, that sounds pretty good, right? I'll take some of that. And so we do, we take it. And when we do, the whole thing shatters. And the whisper that we hear in our ears is, hey, um, you, instead of walking with God in the garden, you need to cover yourself and hide because God's gonna punish you. And so when, when Yahweh finds Adam in the garden, he's like, hey, where are you? And Adam um, says, I, I, I was afraid. That was the first thing he says to him. He says, I, I heard you walking in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid myself. They've been, they, he covered and he hid. And guys, we've been doing that ever since. You know what I'm saying? The Lord is, is, is calling us out to um, his presence, his, um, his fellowship to be with him. And we, and we have been covering and hiding. And God's response is not to be like, dad gummit, you know, I knew, I knew you guys were gonna screw this up, you're out, you know. His response was, I mean, immediately, which is crazy. But his response immediately is, is what theologians call the proto-euangelion. It's the first gospel. And God says, hey, I'm gonna fix this. I'm not, I'm not out to punish you, I'm out to fix you. And so the rest of the story is about that. And so what he does is he promises. He's a God of promise. He chooses a Sumerian guy who is in this polytheistic culture down in modern day Iraq, used to be the city of Ur. And, and he was like, hey, I'm gonna begin my mission with you. My mission to save the world. And he promises to be with him. He says, hey, I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna be with you always. I'm gonna be with you. Um, I'm gonna take your people as my people. I'm gonna be your God. You will be my people. I'm gonna dwell with you. I'm gonna dwell among you. And we see that the, this is also the major theme of scripture where it's called the promise of the presence of God and the witness of God with his people all throughout 
um, the ages we'll see is a major theme through this story. And yet, um, in the midst of all that, he told him, uh, God, Yahweh told Abraham, he said, hey, I'm, I'm at, but before you come into the promised land, I'm gonna send you to Egypt because you gotta go hang out there for like 500 years. You know, it's like this, you know, extended vacation in Egypt, right? Where they turn into slaves. And, and he's like, You're, I'm gonna send you down there for like 500 years. And uh, the reason that I'm gonna send you down there for 500 years is because the land that I'm going to give you, it's not right for me to drive those people out yet. Genesis 15, 16 says that. It says that um, I'm gonna send you there because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. In other words, um, even in his story of salvation, he's allowing the nations around Israel room and he's calling them to repent. Come, be grafted in. And yet there is a time where, um, there is a time where judgment will come. And the deception in this is that God is not a God of promise. He doesn't keep his promise to you. Actually, he abandons you. And so Israel goes down into Egypt and they're enslaved. There's a Pharaoh who wakes up one day and he's like, I don't know, Joseph. I don't know the Israelites. And so I'm gonna use them. I'm gonna enslave them. And so he does. And the whisper that the enemy is whispering into the people's ears is, where did your God go? He's abandoned you. Is a, is a major, major pro, a lie. It's a major, major deception that frankly, uh, many of us still believe. And yet the Lord was, wasn't like, hey, I haven't abandoned you. In fact, I'm finna rescue you, right? And so he does, he goes down into Egypt and he basically obliterates their entire uh, Egyptian, pan their pantheon of deities. He just obliterates them with 10 plagues. And then he pulls his people out of uh, Egypt and is pushing them into the promised land. This event, which is known as the Exodus, is by far the most significant event in the Old Testament. I mean, when Jesus ends up coming, he very much sees himself as that the fulfillment of this second Moses, this deliverer, the, uh, the one who is bringing his people out. And so um, he, he, God hasn't abandoned them. He's powerful. He's powerful to save them. And he promises them again, I will, in Exodus six, I'll take you as my own people. You will be my people, I will be your God, I will dwell in your midst. And then in the desert, he sets up, it was a really interesting thing, this mobile temple. He sets up this mobile temple where um, it's called a tabernacle. And instead of just like other ancient Near, East, Near Eastern cultures where they gods like check out, like Yahweh is very much present with his people in the desert. I mean, it's like really present. He's like right there, right? And in the tabernacle, there is this place, it's uh, shaped like a cube. It's 30 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 30 feet high. It's called the Holy of Holies. And in the tabernacle, this cube was the place where the fullness of the presence of God would dwell among his people. And, and this was both a blessing, frankly, and it was also really dangerous for his people because God is a holy God. And the, you see this, you see the Lord like, uh, dwelling with his people, but it's this messy story because the people continue to gripe and to complain and they continue to, they continue to uh, try to go their own way. And yet what Yahweh is, is uh, with them amongst them and he's going, no, actually I, I am with you because I'm fixing the story that has been broken. 
Um, and what's interesting about the tabernacle as well is, um, so if, if the Lord's created Eden and the garden as kind of like all of, the, all of his creation is his temple, right? Then the tabernacle actually represented all of creation. Josephus, who is a uh, first century Jewish historian said in his Antiquities of the Jews, he said, if anyone without prejudice and with judgment looks on these things, he will find every piece of the tabernacle was made to imitate and to represent the whole universe, which is fascinating. You ever thought about that before? It's like, hey, you got this mobile temple that's moving around in the desert and, and then bam, whoa, whoa, this represents like the entire cosmos. And Yahweh is dwelling in this archetype, it's this type of what he intended in the beginning. But what he intended in the beginning is broken. And so this is a little imitation of it. But he dwells with his people. He commissions them to be a kingdom of priests to the nations, um, to reflect his character and his nature to the rest of the world. Um, and, and in doing that, he pushes them into the promised land, which is the, the land of Canaan. And um, this, is a, this is an interesting point because um, while the promise is that God, or, or while the, the true, the reality of it is, is that God is powerful, um, one of the most common things that I hear in, as an apologist today, as a critique against Christianity, is that God, yeah, God, your God may be powerful, but he is not good. He's cruel because of what is commonly known as the Canaanite genocide. And the Canaanite genocide um, which is not really like, it's not an ethnic cleansing. It's, it's actually a push into an area that was deeply flawed. Um, the, 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 the Canaanites' uh, ritualistic worship rites revolved around various gods like Baal and Asherah and Anath. And there were Hittite practices of prostitution and bestiality and necrophilia. And there was the God of Molech, who was the God that um, to worship him involved child sacrifice. There was all sorts of temple prostitution. So the Lord knew, he's like, hey, I'm pushing you into this land, but you have to drive that out. Because if you don't drive that out, you're gonna become like them. And then there's no differentiation for you to be a light to the nations, which is what I've set you apart for, to be a light for the nations. And so guess what? <laughs> Israel goes in and uh, it doesn't go well, right? Um, I actually did a, uh, I actually interviewed a guy about two years ago named Paul Copan. He, he wrote a book called, Is God a Moral Monster? And so, man, if this is a sticking point for you and you'd love to know more information about kind of the narrative around that and what's going on in the conquest of Canaan, I'd, I'd love, to, uh, uh, love for you to check that out. But a lot of times, um, you know, people are, people are like, well, the Lord shouldn't have done that. He should have just, you know, uh, he should have just allowed them to stay and kind of what today is like, hey, just, just love one another, you know, just everybody just get along. And it's like, hey, when, when there are competing worldviews that cannot coexist, like, hey, you either worship Yahweh or you sacrifice your child to Molech. The Lord's like, no, there is no in-between there. You got to get rid of that. And, and, and so what's interesting is Lewis, C.S. Lewis addresses this in uh, The Problem of Pain, where he says, hey, wh what are you asking God to do? Are you asking him to wipe out their past sins at all costs, to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? Well, he's done that on Calvary. 
Uh, do you want him to forgive them? They won't be forgiven. Do you want him to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. And, and so the, the, actually the Canaanite conquest against um, this, this critique that that maligns the character of God, it actually exalts it when you understand the story. And, and uh, what ends up happening is Israel goes into, they're supposed to drive out the Canaanites and they did partially, but not fully. And what ended up happening is Israel settled in the land and when they settled into the land, they began to adopt the same practices that they were supposed to drive out. Israel was involved in all of these things. And, and so he, Yahweh is just like, okay, I'm gonna continue to labor with you. Um, they, they got to the point where they were like, hey, um, we, we are so much like the nations around us that we, we want to be exactly like them. And so Yahweh, we know you're our king, but we, we're not really sure that you should be our king. And so will you give us another king? And, and Yahweh is like, yeah, it's not gonna go well for you, but if that's what you want, I will. And so he does. He gives him Saul, eh, that didn't work out well. Just go read the story, you know what I'm saying? <clears throat> but then after Saul is a guy named David and, and Yahweh covenants with David and he says, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, give you a house, a kingdom and a throne. And somebody will always be from your lineage, someone will always be on the throne. And so um, while, we see in this, uh, while we see in this stage of the story that God is a God who pursues, he constantly is pursuing these, uh, his people um, what we see Israel believe, the deception, is that God is not trustworthy. They're like, eh, no, nah. we, we know you wanna be our king, but we wanna trust in our own king. So give us our own king. They begin to make alliances with, with pagan peoples, with foreign nations, with the Assyrians, with the Egyptians, with the Arameans, with the Amorites, with all the ites. They're making all these pacts to try to just like stay alive. They're trying to um, protect themselves. And yet um, this, uh, the thing spirals down into chaos and, and the rejection of Yahweh. Actually, if you read the prophets, which I encourage you to, um, is full of emotional language of Yahweh lamenting his people and their rejection of him. And yet in the midst of this, the Lord is like, hey, I'm, but, but I am still going to comfort you. And so he does in Isaiah 7, verses 14 through 16, there's the situation is Isaiah is, is trying to uh, support the king of Judah. And there's two kings, the king of Israel and the king of Aram, um, or the Syrians. And those, the Syria and Israel had allied themselves together and they were coming against Judah. And when they did, um, the, the king of Judah cried out and he's like, help, you know? So Isaiah goes to him and he's like, hey, I'm, the Lord's gonna give you a sign. Before, uh, when this happens, that means that God has arrived with you and that your enemies are gonna be defeated. And this is the sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings that you dread will be laid waste. There's in Isaiah 40 and, and chapter 52, there are these comfort messages about in the midst of all of this pain, Yahweh is like, hey, you guys have acted in such a way that not only did I drive the Canaanites out of the land, you're gonna be driven out of the land and I'm gonna fix this myself. Right? And so what we see is this long period of silence where Yahweh is for the most part quiet. And then in 
the Janu- probably in January in 4 BC, there was a little cry that rang out in Bethlehem, in Judea, during Roman occupation. And that little baby grew to be a man, and that man made really outstanding claims about himself. He, he didn't just claim to be able to f- you know, feed 5,000 people, and, and he didn't just claim to be the Messiah, he didn't just claim to be, he didn't just didn't claim to raise the dead. He actually claimed to be this one who had been laboring with Israel for all of its history. He claimed to be Yahweh. And there's no mixing words there. I mean, when he makes these claims, people pick up stones to throw at him because he's blaspheming. And yet, he dies a common criminal's death and then three days later, this guy, that everybody's like, nah, yeah, no, he's not God. All of a sudden, Romans chapter one, verse four says, Jesus Christ was declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. And so the dead guy who was dead is no longer dead, right? And that changes everything. That is the hinge on which all of history turns. And you begin to see this reversal Um, that you begin to see a God who's personal, who enters into our story with us and then reverses our story. And and, and when when he heals people, their sickness and disease doesn't uh, affect him. His life affects them. He's reversing disease. When um, even to die, which I've thought about this. I mean, you had to know, like with all the miracles that Jesus performed, you had to know that some of his disciples were like, how is this dude gonna die? You know what I'm saying? If he's like raising the widow's son, if he's raising Lazarus from the dead, if he's walking on the water, if he's doing all these things, you know that they had to ask that question. How in the world is that dude gonna die? And the reality of it is, in order for him to die, like the old saying says, he had to borrow death from other people. He had to borrow my death and yours. And he did. He absorbed it like a sponge and he killed it. The Romans had a gospel. It centered around Caesar. There's this pre-in-calendar inscription in Asia Minor that says, uh, the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the whole world, right? And yet this little clan of people in Palestine, after these events take place, begin to write things like this. Mark chapter one, verse one. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the son of God. What they're saying loud and clear is, hey, just like those Canaanite deities are not God, Caesar is definitely not God. Jesus is God. You know know all these people you're placing your trust in? Caesar's not the king. That's not his seat. That's Jesus' seat. He's sitting there temporarily, but not forever. And so what we see is that... um, while some people think that, that God is weak, like, the, like Jesus is this like felt board Jesus or, or is, is some kind of uh, Mr. Rogers type figure, which a lot of times people think about Jesus in those ways, uh, the actual Jesus, the Jesus of history um, is roaring like a lion. He's more like Aslan than he is Mr. Rogers. You know what I'm saying? But, the, but a lot of times those image, that imagery needs to get corrected in our minds. And what's fascinating about it is, is that God being with his people always, um, there's, 
his presence with the temple and then God is present in Jesus. And then when Jesus dies on the cross, the veil is, is ripped, it's torn, it's torn from top to bottom. And, and I think most of the times when I've heard this uh, preached, I've heard it said that, well, that, that means we gain access to God. And that's true in some sense. It is true that now there is this, uh, something has been removed. But in reality, I think the biblical picture of what's going on there is the veil is torn from top to bottom. And what's happening is not that we're getting in, but God is breaking out. That's exactly what the book of Acts is all about. The book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit now permeating all of his creation. He's moving from Jerusalem to Judea and then Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And so the temple shifts. It shifts from a garden to a mobile tabernacle in the desert to a temple in Jerusalem to Jesus, to who? To you and me. You are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And, the, and you are God's arbiter. Where, wherever you go, the kingdom of God goes. It spreads over all the entire world because that is God's mission. His mission was to save the entire world. He, he's patient with the world. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everybody to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9, he's not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. God wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, is 1 Timothy 2.4. And yet the enemy is whispering another lie. And he's going, hey, no, God's not patient. He's done with you. And some of y'all feel like that this morning. Some of y'all feel like, man, I've screwed up too much. I've done this X, Y, and Z, whatever it is. I don't know, you fill in the blank. God's done with me. And what I'm, what I'm here to tell you this morning is, no, God's not done. The, the story continues. We're living in the tension between Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection of, uh, of the, the second resurrection when Jesus makes everything right. And the reality of it is, is what is going to happen, what we have hope in, what we're looking toward is this new heaven and new earth. So heaven's not, some of y'all may not know this, but um, heaven is not some like ethereal sky palace where we like shoot Cupid arrows at each other all, you know, all uh, eternity long singing, I could sing of your love forever and ever and ever and ever, you know? Sounds more like hell to me. Um, But... Cupid arrows, you know? Um, No, heaven is not this ethereal sky palace. Heaven is material, it's real. It's here and now, it's all of this, but just not broken. And also the way it's described in the book of Revelation is that it's described as this city that comes down out of heaven and guess how it's shaped? It's shaped like a perfect cube. This perfect cube coming down out of heaven and establishing this new earth is the fullness of the presence of God with us. The text is really clear in Revelation 21, 22. It says, there is no temple there. And our answer, if we understand the text, should be, well, why would there be? The presence of God is everywhere. We're we're sitting in it. Constantly in the love of God. And that is what God always intended. 
So who is God? What is he like? What kind of story is he writing? What kind of story are you living in? Because the reality of it is, is, is God created us to, and to bear his image, which is so huge. I mean, I, like, I've studied this for a long time, so that, that bears a lot of weight with me, and I'm just telling you, it carries a lot of weight. You know what I'm saying? Like, the fact that we bear the image of God is crazy. And yet we do. And he said, I put you here because I love you, because I want you to co-labor with me as we take part in this creative project to make the world what I always intended it to be. But that broke. And it's not that God tossed us out and abandoned us and is out to punish us and is cruel and unjust and all this stuff. No, the whole time he's been the only one who is good. He's been the only one who's been constant and has been like, no, return. He's constantly has his hand out. Um, like 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, don't delay. Today is the day of salvation because God is always calling us. He's always inviting. Always. One, of the, one, one good question to consider in all of this is, maybe you've never thought about it like this, but I would encourage you to. Ask yourself this, what kind of being when his presence indwells you and is given full reign to do whatever he wants in your life, what kind of being creates in you love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? You think that's some evil God? You think that's some God that's out to get you, to punish you, to abandon you, to leave you on your own? No. I mean, the, the, reality, that, the reality is, is that when, when God shows up, all things good show up with him because he's the source from which they come. There, there's this really interesting uh, verse in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It says, we know that when Christ appears that we will be like him because, and I always like stop there because I'm like, well, we're gonna be like God because, and then I'm like, well, what's next? Come on, tell me, right? Um, how, are, how are we gonna be like him? Well, because you will see him as he is. There is a direct correlation between you growing in maturity into Christ-likeness and also your ability to see God as he actually is. The reality of it is, is that as long as we are living in this um, deception and lie and false narrative that would tell us that God is someone who he is not, then it doesn't matter how much religious activity you do. It doesn't matter how much you read your Bible. It doesn't matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter how often you go to your community group. It doesn't matter any of those things. If the God that you're relating to and your psychological construct of who he is is an evil, abhorrent, malevolent God, then you're never gonna grow. And so when I'm asking the question, why do we read scripture? That is the right question. You need to be asking yourself that. You need to be asking, why do we read scripture? What kind of God am I trying to interact with here? Because the reality is, is God's not punishing you. He hasn't abandoned you. He is good. 
He's trustworthy. He saves. He's definitely not done with you. I mean, he's, he's not out to get you. He's, he's the only one who's been trying to save you this whole time. He didn't, Jesus didn't come to take the world by force. He came to rescue it with love. God is love. And when formation occurs, like they're, they're gonna show up here, when formation occurs, um, the, the, decepti- the deception that we so often live in just disappears. And what's left is the God who is. That's what God's like. Anything else that would draw you away from this is a lie straight out of the pit of hell. And so when, when, when you're thinking about your story, what kind of God are you interacting with? When you pick up the scriptures to read them, what kind of, what kind of deity is, um, are you interacting with? That you're pray, who are you praying to? Um, what, in those four categories of, of the, the different common misconceptions that people have, like that's, that's the root behind those transactional and utilitarian and, and sentimental self-help stuff. The root behind all of that is you have a false view of God. God's not like that. He loves you. He doesn't want you to read the Bible so that you can check a box. He wants you to read the Bible because that is a means of grace that he's given to you to meet you there, to develop and cultivate intimacy with you. Look, if you're sitting there going, man, you just walked us through kind of this narrative of the Bible. I don't even know where to start. Like, what the heck? Where do I even start, right? I don't even, you're talking about a story I'm not even familiar with. And what I would say is, it's okay. This crawl, walk, run. If you're crawling, don't try to walk. If you're walking, don't try to run yet. Just do what you can do. Take a step. One of the greatest steps, like every single one of y'all needs to sign up for Join the Journey. I mean, we'll email it to you, right? So we'll email it to you and be like, here, read this. Um, and if you're like, man, I have no idea. We have all kinds of equipping opportunities. I mean, there's uh, Summit, men's Bible study is gonna launch. Women's Bible study is gonna launch. Equip Disciple is gonna launch. Uh, uh, our next iteration of online core classes, those, those cohorts, go, cohorts are going to launch. Like jump in, do something. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. Any of y'all ever do jigsaw puzzles? It's like a jigsaw puzzle. You take the first piece, and what's the first piece typically? A corner, Right? Because you're like, oh, I know that's a corner because of the way it's shaped, right? Well, if you look at that one piece, you're like, eh, I don't know what it is. But it's a piece of the puzzle. And what I'm telling you is, as you study, as you apply yourself, as you take advantage of these equipping opportunities, you're gonna add pieces to the puzzle. And as you add pieces to the puzzle, what do you end up seeing? The entire picture. And it's really beautiful. When you understand who God is, and when you understand what God has done for you, and you understand the nature of the story, then no amount of distraction, no amount of, of oh, I gotta do, oh, I, I forgot to read my Bible today. Like no amount of any kind of distraction would keep you from entering in. Not reading surface level. Okay, okay, thanks Lord. I'm talking about entering the story. And what happens when you enter the story you find God there. Because guess what, guys? God is not a book. He's a person. And this is his story. So I am gonna challenge you this morning. 
to read scripture this year, but I wanna challenge you and ask you that deeper motivating question. Why are you reading scripture? Who is the God that you know? How does your view of God measure up to the God who is? Let me close with this. This is the greatest lie of all. Like nothing even comes close to it. This is the greatest lie of all. And there's a lot of people in this room, myself included, who believe it sometimes. Some of us believe it more than others. And this is it. God does not love you. He doesn't even like you. And while none of us would stand up and be like, oh yeah, that's definitely me, right? I would ask you, how many of you function like that? How many of you function as if God does not love you? There's this great little word in 1 John 3, 1. The word is called potapos. It's a Greek word that literally is a question. It's what, is, what, what country is this from? And the, the way we translate it now is, is uh, see, behold, or see how great something is. But really, if you literally translate it, it should read, um, what country is the love of God from? The love of God is something that is so incomprehensible and beyond our capacity to even fully comprehend that um, the greatest thing we can do is to be like, this is so alien and foreign to what we know. It has to be from somewhere else. So I loved the way Lewis described it in Mere Christianity. I think all Christians would agree with me if I said that though Christianity seems at first to be all about morality and all about duties and rules and guilt and virtue, yet it leads you on out of all that into something beyond. One has a glimpse of a country where they don't talk of those things except perhaps as a joke. Everyone there is filled full of what we should call goodness as mirror is filled with light, but they don't call it goodness. They don't call it anything. They're not even thinking about it. They are too busy looking at the source from which it comes. But this is near the stage where the road passes over the rim of our world. No one's eyes can see very far beyond that, but a lot of people's eyes can see further than mine. God is the hero of the story. He is enthroned over his creation. He is making all of the entire cosmos his place. And you as an integral part of it because he loves you. My prayer for you is this. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that love that surpasses knowledge. All of creation sings his praise. When you see him as he is, praise becomes like as easy as breathing. It's like a knee-jerk response. You see him as he is and you're transformed and you praise because he's worthy. 
because he's love. All of creation in heaven and on earth sings his praise. And so I invite you, I invite you to join the song.